If you have your Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to James chapter 3. James chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 1 to 12 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under a chair or in a pew back in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, please take this. We believe that this is God's Word, and we want you to have God's Word in front of you. And as you're turning to James chapter 3, I want to ask you, how would you define true religion? If someone came up to you and said, please define to me or for me, what is true religion? What would you say? My guess is some of us would say the things that you should do and the things that you shouldn't do. Others of us would say, hey, it doesn't really matter at all what we do. It matters entirely upon the grace of God, which is just a free gift that God gives when we trust in Jesus Christ. And both of those answers have a bit of truth in them and yet a bit of falsehood, don't they? The truth is that it is entirely based upon Jesus Christ. But as we've seen in James so far, that faith should actually change us and make us different. But my wonder is, if you were to define what true religion actually is, my wonder is how many of us would have answered the question with what we talk about? How many of us would answer the question, well, Pure or true religion has something to do with the way in which we talk. My guess is so often we don't think about our words, and yet our words have massive power, don't they? When I was a kid, I was told that kids are to be seen and not heard. Now, I realize that there's a danger in that. But do you know what I learned from that? What I learned is that you don't always have to talk. You don't always have to say what you're thinking. That there is a time and place to reserve our mouths and to shut our mouths and to be quiet before others and before God. And yet to quiet ourselves in the midst of the culture we live in feels as if it's anti-us, or feels as if it's anti-the world. We live in a world that desires expressive individualism, which says, speak your mind. But even that has limits, doesn't it? Speak your mind so long as you speaking your mind doesn't offend me. Speak your mind, just don't speak about Jesus, because I don't want to hear about that. So even the world knows that their message of speaking their mind has its limits. And this morning, James is going to challenge us to be mindful about what we say. Going to challenge our lips about how... uh, Excuse me, how often they move and how much they speak. And he's going to tie what we say back to our hearts and show that what we speak comes out of our heart and it's the heart that reveals where our hope actually is. And to get there, this is going to be James's main point that real religion 
requires sound speech. That if you say, I follow Jesus, the command on your life now is to have sound speech, pure speech. And so with that, let's go ahead and read our passage this morning. And as we do, would you stand with me as we read? Uh, We stand to honor God, the fact that he is speaking to us. And this just reminds us of his holiness and his goodness in giving us his word. James chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds... They are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. This is the word of the Lord. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. So the letter by James is written by a half-brother of Jesus. And as we've seen before, even Jesus' half-brothers did not believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They did not believe that Jesus is the coming king until Jesus dies and rises from the dead. And it transforms their thinking to the point that now James is writing to the early church. About 10 to 15 years after Jesus has died and returned to heaven. And so James is writing to encourage this church in the midst of persecution. We saw in chapter 1 that he encourages us to count it joy when we meet various trials. And so throughout his whole letter, he's trying to establish us in our faith, reminding us that if we believe in Jesus, it should actually change the way in which we live today. And now this week, he's focusing on our words 
that if we say we believe in Jesus Christ, the way in which we talk should be vastly different than the way the world talks. Can that be said of you? That if you were to gauge the way in which you talk, it is vastly different than the way the world talks. Because as James is going to show us, real religion is not just beliefs, but it leads to action and it leads to pure and sound speech. Church, if you follow Jesus Christ, we should be self-controlled people even to the point of our tongues and our lips. And so to help us get there, James is going to show us five truths about this real religion and about our tongues. So let's look at these five truths. The first truth he's going to show us is the prerequisites. Okay, what is required prior to his main focus in the passage? If you remember last week in chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, James focused on the connection between our faith and our deeds. James said that if you actually believe in Jesus... It changes how you live. And we saw that, that works are the receipt that we actually have faith in Jesus Christ. So if you go to the restaurant, you will eat your food and then you will pay for it. And they will give you a receipt that you can show as proof to all of your friends and family, I actually ate at that restaurant. Our works are proof to the world, and even to ourselves, that yes, I have been changed. I do love Jesus Christ. And that should be a beautiful reality in our lives, that we are being regularly conformed to the image of Jesus Christ away from the image of the world. And it should trickle all the way down to the way in which we speak. And notice how James gets us there. Look at verse 1. He does something that is scary as well as strange. Look at what he says in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers. For you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now this is strange. Because after verse 2, you can see that the uh, majority of the passage isn't talking about teachers. Last week, the passage wasn't talking about teachers. And yet, right in this moment, James begins to focus on the teachers. Now, why would that matter? Because if you go back to chapter 2 and you see that there are some in verse 18 that say, I have faith, and others that say, I have works... How did they get that kind of thinking? There must have been false teachers telling them, hey, all you have to do is work rightly, then you're right with God. Or all you have to do is just believe rightly, and then you're right with God. And so false teachers have come into the church, and they're plaguing the church, and they're dividing the church, and they're leading people astray from the truth of Jesus Christ. This summer, I made a claim 
one Sunday that apart from God and his control over the entire universe, if you really think about our lives, much of what we do boils down to the conversations that we have. How you spend your free time is because somebody has told you you should spend your free time this way. What you spend your money on is because you watched an ad and either verbally or in print, somebody has told you, you need this item. It's what makes the world go round, is our words. This is why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, that bad company corrupts good character. Because the more you're around people who do not want to live for Jesus Christ, the more they're going to influence you with their words away from Jesus Christ. This is also why Moses writes in Deuteronomy 6 that we as parents are tasked to train our kids. That as we lie down and as we rise up, as we sit in our house and as we walk by the way, we are to regularly remind our kids of the truth of Jesus Christ. It's not my role for your child. It's your role as a parent to shepherd and to help your children through words to know the truth of Jesus. It's also why we read in 2 Timothy 4, That there are going to be people that are going to come in in the last time speaking things to you that you're going to like. You're going to listen and think, oh, that sounds good. But there's little to no truth behind it. And so whenever you listen to people, you have to always check it with God's Word. Even every week as you come in here, you must check what I say with God. God's word. Because words have the ability to push us one way or another. And words have the ability to hurt, don't they? You remember the old adage as a kid? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. My guess is that many of us in this room no phrases that were used by friends, family, others that have stuck with us for years, if not decades, and continue to plague our lives. Words are incredibly powerful and influential. And James sees this. And so he doesn't want many to teach Well, why is that? Look again at verse 1. He says, because those who teach are going to be judged with greater strictness. Now, why is that the case? Because the more you teach, the more you should know. And the more you should know is the more mastery you ought to have over that kind of teaching. Doesn't mean that you're going to be perfect. It just means that you should have an understanding and should be looking to live that truth out. Church, this is why it's so important 
that as you look to appoint leaders, which we call elders in the church, you're looking at what God's word says and you're comparing that man's life to God's word. Because I will be judged and anyone who stands up here will be judged for what we teach to you because we have the ability to lead you astray. Now, what's so important about that? Well, James shows us the reason. Look at verse 2. He uses the word for. Anytime you see that word for, it's typically giving you a reason, and that's what he does. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. None of us are perfect, right? We all have ways in which we are stumbling in life. And yet, notice what he says. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says. He doesn't say in what he does. He says in what he says. He is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. James says that there's a connection between what you do and what you say and what Jesus says in Matthew 15, 17, and 19, there's a connection between what you say and what your heart actually is. Because in Matthew 15, Jesus says, it's out of the overflow of the heart that our mouth speaks. You can't speak something and then say, whoa, whoa, whoa didn't mean that. No, it came naturally from our hearts. What we say proves what we actually love. And so we've got to be careful because the, the way to growth and the way to maturity, and James even says the way to perfection, is to be able to not stumble in what we say, which means that we then are able to bridle our entire body. Church, we've got to be a people who take seriously what we say. We've got to be a people who take seriously the ways in which we communicate to one another. I mean, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the flippancy of words, haven't we? I mean, how many bomb threats do we need to have in our community? Maybe you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa I, I haven't called 911 and threatened anything. But how many times have you told a story that isn't quite true? Or how many times have you said something to get at another so that you can feel better about your own life? Or how many times you've just talked in a way so that others would look at you and praise you? So we've got to be a people who are checking our own hearts and checking our own words and the result is that James says that not many of us should teach. I'll be honest with you, that is one of the scariest passages for me as a pastor. Because I know my tongue and I know my lips and I know how quick I am to think of clever ways to get at or under people. So pray for me. But then James continues, he shows us the second truth, and that is the power that we need to be careful with our words, because he, he shows us the extent of how a little 
can change and affect a lot. Look at verse 3. He says, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Have you ever seen a bit in the horse's mouth? It's, it's very little compared to this ginormous animal right beside you. And it's that little thing in the mouth of a horse that can direct the horse to go left, right, stop, forward, whatever it is. Just a little thing has the ability to transform and change the direction of this massive animal. And now James says the, the littlest thing in our mouths has the ability to transform and change the direction of our lives. Have you ever been around somebody who is just entirely negative? What happens? Their negativity begins to seep into you and change the way in which you view the world. And so now you become negative as well. Have you ever thought... Who speaks the most to you? You do. You speak the most to you. And often the things that you are saying are negative things, condemning things, and has the ability to transform the way in which you think about your life. This is why the world constantly is telling us, hey, just be positive. Because they know that there's a lot of negativity out there. And they know that you are constantly bringing that internally. And we know from the Bible that there's a demonic realm out there that is feeding us lies. And the two come together and if we were to actually do a scan on our brain and reveal everything that we think, we would see just how negative they are. This is why we have to be a people who are regularly reminding ourselves of the gospel truth. That we, as we think about these things, we confess them before the Lord. We do the work to dig out what's driving this thought and we confess that before the Lord. And then we take the truth of Jesus and we remind ourselves regularly about that truth. Paul tells us in Philippians 4 that we should be people who are thinking about whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is noble, whatever is commendable, whatever is excellent. To allow our minds to think about that. And so we need to be a people who are taking our thoughts captive and submitting them back to Jesus Christ and reminding ourselves of the goodness of Christ. Church, that's one of the reasons why we gather each week. It's one of the reasons why we sing. Because you're like, I don't know how to do that. So we sing a song. All creatures of our God and King, let's worship Him. We're going to sing this, the power of the cross. What a wonderful truth to be reminded as you think about how difficult and troublesome the world is to just sing at the end of the service this morning, this is the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's why we sit under the teaching of God's word. So that those truths would sink into our heads and into our hearts. This is why we talk with one another. So that we can remind each other 
that those things out there are lies. But this is truth from the Lord. So I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you to be intentional with one another. There is football this afternoon, but let's talk about the Lord now. To remind our hearts and our minds of who God is so that we might fight against the wrong use of our tongues. But then James shows us another analogy. Look at verse 4 in this second analogy. He says, look at the ships also. They're so large. They're driven by strong winds. They're guided, though, by a very small rudder. Very little rudder can change the direction of a ship. Have you ever thought about how wars happen? Often wars don't happen because one day a military wakes up and moves into another country and says, we want your country. Often wars happen because there's a thinking and there's a mentality that a leader begins to speak and begins to spew out to his people that changes the way they view others and it leads to war. This is what Hitler did that was so intelligent. He saw the effects of World War I. He saw the devastation that the Germans had to deal with, and he saw the Jews and how rich they were, and he said, well, that's not okay. And so he began to teach the children that, hey, your problem is not you, your problem is the Jews. And so very quickly, in a matter of years, he could round up all the Jews and exterminate them, all the while stirring up his people to take over Poland and the Netherlands and Belgium and France and so on and so on. And he did it not because he could bench press 200 pounds. He did it because he had this tongue in his mouth that he knew how to use and mobilize millions to utter destruction. Church, our tongues have enormous power. This is why the Proverbs tell us in Proverbs 18.21 that death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 10, uh, Proverbs 10.19 tells us that when words are many, transgression is not lacking. The more we speak, the more we sin. This is why Paul encourages us in Ephesians 4.29 that we should let no unwholesome talk come out of our mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Church, we need to be a people who are using our words to give grace to others because notice uh, notice the mass, the immense and the massive power that James then shows us in verse 5. He says, so also the tongue is a small member, and yet it boasts of great things. The tongue can boast of great wickedness, and yet it can boast of great joy in Jesus Christ. Do you know the reason why I am here 
in this moment right now is because I read a book and in that book, on the pages of that book, the author proclaimed the glorious nature of God through our jobs, through our money, through our family, through our thought life. He just proclaimed how great God is and that grabbed my heart and the Lord used that to give me faith in him. And then a single conversation on a college campus with a friend changed the trajectory of my life from the business world to the the church and the campus ministry world. Words have that much power. They can be used for evil and they can be used for an immense amount of good. Church, this is why I want to encourage you to take a look at the words that come out of your mouth Men, we set the tone for our homes. We set the tone for the church in the things that we say. And if we're not careful, we can be very flippant. We can be very insensitive. Not thinking at all about the dumb things that are coming out of this little area. And yet they have the ability to bring utter destruction on those we love. So men, let's be men who take inventory of our words that we confess and we lay that before the Lord and we begin to use our words to breathe life into one another and into our families. Because if we don't, James shows us what will happen. And that's what he shows us next, the problem. The problem. Look at the second half of verse 5. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. I grew up in fire country, if you will. Year after year, there's thousands of acres in northern and southern California that are burned. Thousands of acres of forest land just gone in a moment's notice. And most of those fires start either from a small electrical spark or from someone just throwing a cigarette out their window without putting it out. Just a small bit has the ability to bring utter devastation. And James wants us to awaken to the problem So we need to think, the next time we want to use our words to tear down, we want to use our words for revenge or even prove ourselves to other people, instead of brushing that off and compounding the problem and and experiencing the, the eventual detriment in our own lives, I want you to just pause in that moment and just think about the fire that you're about to start and spark. To think about the forest that will go up in flames by just your words. And so we need to be a people who are building others up and not tearing them down. But why is that? Look at verse 6. He says that the tongue itself is a fire. And notice what the tongue does. It's a, it's a world of unrighteousness. It opposes God. God is right, God is holy, God is just, and yet our tongue is full and a world of unrighteousness that opposes God. And yet, here's the scary part, 
He says that it's set among our members. We don't even notice it. Most days you go throughout life, you don't even notice your tongue. You don't notice your lips. They're just part of your body, and yet Paul or yet James is telling us that they have the ability to stain the entire body and not just stain it, but set the entire course of your life on fire. About 10 years ago, a woman, uh, just before she hopped on a plane, I think she was flying from Newark, New Jersey. She was going to fly to London, England, and then from there to Johannesburg, South Africa. And as she hopped on the plane, she tweeted something uh, mocking the people in the airport. She then got to London. As she landed there, she saw British people, and she had some sort of humorous comment about the way British people look and talk. And so she tweeted that as well. And by the time her plane landed in Johannesburg, South Africa, her Twitter feed had blown up to catastrophic proportions that eventually caused her employer to fire her. And her life was utterly decimated because it became national news through 140 characters. And James says that's what happens when we're not careful with our tongue. But it's not just that we set our life on fire. Notice how. Look at the end of verse 6. It's set on fire by hell. So when we spew evil and we spew hurt with one another, James says it's demonic. It's of the devil. And so we need to be careful about what we speak. Church, do you see the problem with our words yet? But there's a, another problem. Because notice what James says in verse 7. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed. I have never been able to tame that many animals. I don't own an animal because I don't want to have to tame it. I can't imagine taming every single beast and bird of reptile and sea creature. There is a way in which you can tame a lion that is just seeking to devour and rip your head off. And yet there are people trained out there that know how to get that lion tame. But notice what James says about our tongue. Verse 8, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. What did he just say? It feels as if it is almost utterly impossible to tame the tongue. 
And so we cannot take our words in a nonchalant way. We cannot be people that just laugh at the coarse jokes or just kind of push off what we say as if it does not matter. Instead, we need to be a people who are fighting our speech. How do we do that? We do that by being grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take a moment to think about the words that you speak and the, and the reason why you often will speak hurtful words to another. If I'm honest, one of the hardest parts about preaching is the fact that, unbeknownst to me, that week I typically struggle with that very passage and have to live that very passage out. And so to much of my own shame, this Friday I played basketball and as we played, something was said and, and I then said something that was not coarse or anything like that, but it just was not encouraging and beneficial to all who heard. And if I'm honest, the reason why I said that was because I went into basketball knowing I'm the worst player on the court and already feeling timid about playing with these guys. And in that moment, instead of grounding myself in the fact that my identity is not tied to how many baskets I make, my identity is tied to Jesus Christ. I walked on the court feeling like I needed to prove myself to these other guys. And so the moment one of them began to make fun of me in front of everybody was the moment I shot back at him. And isn't that the very pattern of our lives? Often the reason why we shoot back at people with our tongue is because we're not grounded in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so I had to do the thing that we should all do. I had to go up to that man and say, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? But if we're grounded in the gospel, if we're grounded in the fact that Jesus loves us, he died for us, he came to save us, he came to give us new life, that should lead us to walk in and say, no matter what you say, it doesn't matter. I'm tied to Jesus Christ. Because if we don't get serious about this, we then begin to see James' fourth point, and that's the perversion. The perversion. Here's what's perverted. If we don't get serious about our tongues, if I don't get serious, we begin to distort what we think is faith in Jesus Christ. Notice how James shows this. Look at verse 9. He's talking about the tongue. And he says, with it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. With this small little 
inch by three inches, I, I don't know, with this small little member, we have the ability to sing these amazing songs about God, to talk about how great God is, to praise God's name, and yet at the same time to spew evil against other people who are created in the image of God. Genesis 1 tells us that all of us are created in the image of God. And so the moment that we grumble, complain, gossip, slander, speak any sort of evil against one another, we are speaking evil against the image of God, which doesn't make sense because we're trying to praise God. Do you see how perverted that becomes? We become so diluted that I love God, and yet God's saying, but you don't love my image. And how easy it is for us to believe that truth and that reality. And so we need to be people who are careful how we talk with one another. So that we're not spewing out this poison upon each other. Because James continues in verse 10, he says, From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. One of the saddest realities in church life is that we can say very hurtful things to and about one another. And I'm not talking about calling out sin because that's a good thing. I'm talking about actually speaking evil to somebody that we don't agree with or speaking evil about them. We ought to be a people who are a place of hope, a place of life-giving. That when we speak, we are seeking to build up. And so church, I want to encourage you to ask the Lord for that kind of heart. That we would be the kind of people that love one another with our tongues. Because otherwise, James shows us an analogy that just does not make sense. Look at verse 11. He says, does... Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Of course not. Verse 12, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Of course not. So neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. James is just saying it. You can't have the Spirit of God and then constantly be spewing out things of your flesh. We have to put to death the deeds of our flesh. It reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew 22. Somebody comes up to him and says, hey, uh, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, okay, the greatest commandment is this. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. He says, the second is like it, that you should love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and prophets are summed up in these two great commands. But did you see what Jesus said? The way in which you interact with other people shows your love for God. The two are utterly tied together. And if we're not careful, we often split them apart and we talk to people in a way that we would be embarrassed for others to know. And yet we talk about the Lord as if we are close and second to him. And James wants us to be aware of this reality.
So how do we prevent this? I mean, James just said it is, I mean, you can tame a lion, but man, your tongue is just super difficult. So how do we prevent this? Well, let's look lastly at the path. We have to follow the thinking of James. James started with Christians in suffering, and he's wanting them to tie their faith in Christ to the way in which they live their life. And last week we saw that tie very explicit, that if we have faith in Jesus, it produces good works. And this week we see the good works are that we're speaking well of one another. But how does that happen? We have to get to what we see next week, and that's in verses 13 to 18. Look in particular at verse 15. James talks that there is that this is not the wisdom that comes from, down from above. But then also look at verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure. So James says that. There's two wisdoms. There's a wisdom from this world that we often operate out of, and there's a wisdom from above. And so the way in which we prevent our tongues from spewing evil is that we actually grasp and live out of the wisdom from above. Well, how do we do that? Well, we see this most perfectly in Jesus, don't we? In Jesus, we see him using his words for our good. In Matthew 27, verses 11 to 14, we see a very odd situation happening with Jesus. He has been arrested. He is taken before Pilate. And Matthew says, now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? So he's on trial. If he doesn't answer correctly, he's going to die on a cross publicly shamed, publicly uh, humiliated for all to see. And in this moment, the governor says, are you the king of the Jews? To say yes means that you're competition to Caesar and you will for sure die. And notice what Jesus says. Jesus said, you've said so. He doesn't say yes, he doesn't say no, he just says, yeah, whatever you say. But then listen to how odd it gets. Matthew writes, But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. If someone is falsely accusing you, and perhaps it's going to lead to your horrific murder and death, how are you going to respond in that moment? Imagine you are the creator of the universe. And you created the very people falsely accusing you. How are you going to respond in that moment? My blood would be boiling and my lips would be moving and my tongue would be going a hundred miles an hour, lashing out and proving why all of your accusations are wrong and you should die and I should live. And yet in that moment, Jesus was silent. And it was such a deafening silence that we read, Then Pilate said to him, 
Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Like Pilate's just saying, this is so odd. Why aren't you giving a response? Why aren't you speaking up? Why aren't you doing something about this? Matthew just says, but he gave him no answer. Not even to a single charge. So the governor was greatly amazed. How utterly shocking. The perfect sinless one standing on trial and in that moment could call down angels to rescue him, could call down a whole body of evidence to indict everybody else and put them on a cross. And in that moment, he is silent. Why is that? Well, Jesus tells us in John 10. In John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. They don't take it from me. I lay it down. On my accord, I'm laying it down for my sheep so that if you trust in me, if you believe in me, you might have eternal life. You see, in that moment, Jesus could keep silent because he had a greater vision and a greater perspective of the glory of the Lord. And he knew his singular purpose was to honor and glorify God through his death. He knew the only way for you and I to have a right relationship with God was for him to be silent and to not speak, but rather endure the wrath of God on him for sin. For him to be nailed to the cross. For him to die a horrific death and then rise from the dead. So that we, by faith and by trust in Jesus Christ, might be given a greater life and a greater reality. So that today, you don't have to prove yourself. If you are a child of God, it has already been proven. You are now a son or daughter of the Most High God. You now are an heir to the promises of eternal life. So it doesn't matter what other people say about you. This little thing can praise God and be silent when all those people speak negative and ill towards you. And so if you are in here this morning and you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, you have nothing before the Lord to stand to divert the wrath of God to give you hope and to give you life beyond the things of this world. So I want to plead with you to come. Plead with you to lay down your attempts at proving yourself. And come to the foot of the cross and confess your sin before Christ. And to trust that his life in your place gives you brand new life. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you this morning to come back to the cross. And to bring all of those ways in which you've used that small little bits called a tongue. 
and to confess them before God. To receive the gracious and merciful compassion of the Father through Jesus Christ. To receive his forgiveness for all of those ways. And to submit your life, including your tongue and your heart, to Jesus Christ. Church, this only happens if we know that we are approved by Jesus Christ. This only happens if we know that our words cannot add to our rightness before God. This only happens if we remind ourselves that what we see here will not last, but will be gone in a moment's notice. But what is for eternity will last forever. And so church, if we are going to follow Christ, we're not just called to have sound speech, We're actually invited by God to use our words and our lips to praise and magnify his name. So how is your speech this morning? Is it sound? Is it displaying the real, true reality that Jesus Christ died and rose for you? so I can use my lips for him. Let's pray. Father, there's some passages in your word that just seem utterly daunting. They seem so simple at face value. Be careful with our tongue. Be careful with our lips. We, we know that. It just seems so simple. We can memorize that. We can leave here thinking about it. And yet it is so hard to actually do and to live out. So Father, first we confess the way in which we've used our tongues and our lips to destroy your image. And we ask that you'd remind us that our hope is not in how we can use our tongues, but our hope is in the fact that Christ did not use his and instead died for us to give us new life. Father, help us to be a changed people, to be a people who use our tongues for your glory. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.